All right, welcome to another podcast. In this one, I want you guys to prepare yourself for some really awesome information. I'm with Dr. Gabriel Weiss, and like my other podcast, we've already been on the phone for quite a while, and I had to hit stop on our earlier conversation because it was so good. And I want um, Gabe to share the nuggets with you that we, the, the gems, the pearls that we were covering. So first, you know, uh, I want, if you could, talk a little bit about what you're going to present on at Symposium. I know you're coming to Symposium, the Pacific Symposium in November, and um, the title is 12 Official Physiology in Clinical Practice. It's based on the work that's going into your next book. You've already translated a book that was published in 2019, more on that in a moment, but in your words, please share a little bit about your three-hour workshop. It's on the 4th of November at Symposium. This topic, you and I, please also include the discussion that we had before I hit record on the holographic nature versus holotropic nature that you see out in the world. And um, I mean, welcome to the podcast. And I'm so excited for you to share this with everybody. Yeah. Hi. Um, well, let's see. So yes, my, my lecture is um, that the title of the lecture, I, I think might be a little misleading there. Um, the, the, the focus of my lecture is uh, primarily the, um, is chapter eight of the Yellow Emperor's Classic of, of the uh, simple questions. Um, and it is the uh, Linglan Median Lun, which is the, the is the kind of secret uh, treatise of the library of the miraculous orchid. Um, and there's a lot you can kind of read into the title and whatnot, but essentially that uh, chapter um, describes the, the 12 officials or the 12 offices, I would refer to as Guan. Um, and it essentially creates um, a, a metaphorical description of these 12 organs that are in the body uh, with reference to um, their role in um, kind of a, uh, I guess you could think of it as a, as a government. Um, so in the description of my uh, lecture, I use the word um, cybernetic, uh, kind of this cybernetic, the cybernetic relationships of the organs in the body. And this passage, um, and the cybernetic, if you, the word cybernetic, it sounds funny, but it, it really is simply a, a system with independent or um, individual actors that, that react toward one another and, and regulate one another through the role that they, they play with one another. So um, in the human body, of course, in, in Chinese medicine, um, each organ, it, it, the activity of each organ is um, modified and it responds to the activities of, of, of other organs. And um, of course, we're familiar with this type of um, network dynamic um, on multiple levels as students of Chinese medicine. We have the, the five phases or the five elements. We have the, the 12 organs. We have very basic ones like yin and yang, fullness and emptiness. Um, so in this passage, um, I think it's very interesting in that the, the organs are actually related toward a particular official um, and each official is given uh, a role 
um, you know, kind of what their, their role is and then what emerges from that role. Um, and like um, most of the classics, if you just read through it, you just kind of do a, a gloss of glo a glossy reading of it. Um, it's not, it's really not terribly interesting. Um, Dr. Liu, in the, in the book that I translated in classical Chinese medicine, in the, the, the first part of that book, he, he references this, I think, very important point, which is if you just read the classics and you just kind of read over them, it's kind of like, oh yeah, I, I knew that. Um, and it, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem either profound or, or interesting, but, um, and he, he, he gives this description of, of people, you know, other practitioners who will have the Yellow Emperor's Classic on their desk, you know, uh, kind of in a pile of other books collecting dust. And then they have all these, and this is his description. They have all of these current um, journal articles and textbooks on you know modern physiology and pharmacology, and um, uh, you know current scientific studies, in particular herbs and, and things like that. Um, and the classics themselves are are like become almost entirely neglected. Um, and and I totally understand that that impulse because when you're reading a a, a textbook, say a, patho a textbook on some particular disease, epidemiology, pathology, there's all this detail. Everything is Everything is, is written out in, in, in vast detail. So each, each paragraph, each chapter, each section of the book goes deeply into whatever subject you're looking at. If you're looking at the heart, there's all these details and things. So when you're in, in practice, you can, um, you know, and you see these particular uh, detailed instances, you can refer back to this information that you have, you know, in, in, in you know, books on biochemistry or or, or nutrition or whatever it is that you're looking at or thinking about that day. Whereas with the classics, you have this, you have this very condensed, what seems like a very condensed uh, passage. So this particular chapter follows this, this rhythmic repetition. There, there are only a handful of, of characters that are used. There are a number of characters that repeat themselves throughout the, the, the first paragraph. And then there are just a handful of these, these individual uh, characters. But when I was teaching um, the integrative anatomy, physiology, and biochemistry, at that time, I was uh, fascinated by, um, and, I, and I've always been with, with, with Chinese, the Chinese language, I was fascinated by the etymology. I can remember when I first started learning Chinese, when I was learning the characters, I really wanted to know what this was a picture of. My first Chinese uh, professor, uh, Hyung Ru, who's uh, Korean, was an absolutely amazing Chinese professor. You know, he had the character there. Every once in a while, I would say, oh, you know, and this is a bed, this is a person. And I would ask him, you know, well, what are these other parts though? Like how many, you know, what's this? And he he wasn't that interested in it himself. He his interest lay elsewhere. He was into poetry and things like that, but he wasn't he wasn't interested in the etymology. Whereas I I really wanted to understand what the kind of the nuts and bolts of the, the character were. Um, and this for me was a, a, an interest or a passion that I had even before I got into Chinese, even when I was just reading um, books as a, you know, a high school age student, I loved learning the etymology of, of words, seeing where they came from, what they, what they were constructed of, 
what they really meant. Um, and a lot of the, the mean, the, the word would kind of come alive when I understood the etymology, because within the etymology, you have, you have the analogy, which makes the word work. So all of our, all of our thought, all of the things that we're trying to convey through words or ideas or larger constructions like sentences or paragraphs or essays or stories or you know whatever it is they're, they're they're all more or less elaborate analogies um, um, there's a book called surfaces and and essences by the same author who wrote uh, girdle Escher Bach he talks all about uh, it's Douglas Hofstadter he talks all about how um, all of our thought and surfaces and essences he goes into it in in very um, um, uh, he goes through very exhaustively. He shows how all thought, all ideas are essentially exercises in analogy. So one of the problems, that, and this is something that Pedro Domingo um, um, uh, pointed out in, in his book on the master algorithm, one of the problems in trying to teach a machine to think or to speak the way a human does. So one of the obstacles towards to even achieving the, the, what is referred to as the, the singularity in uh, the tech world in artificial intelligence when um, artificial intelligence will become truly intelligent the way that the human mind is, is this inability to grasp analogy. So you and I use analogy all of the time. We, we use it without even thinking. So every time, we, every time we do something one way and we run into a situation that's similar but different, it could be, it could be a very different context. For instance, we could have a bucket with a hole in it and we wanna plug the leak. And so we find something malleable, sort of squishy that we can stick in the hole to keep the bucket from leaking. All of that, something squishy to stick in the hole and all, all those words, everything that I just said to you that you immediately grasped and understood, all of that was analogical. And so you could come to a completely different situation. It could be a situation where you've, you, you have a secret that you wanna keep that you don't want anyone to find out and someone else knows about it and you're afraid that they're going to tell people, or maybe they've already started telling people, and you, you want to go and kind of plug that hole. You want to stop that leak. That's all, that's all an analogy. So two totally different, for a robot would look at it and go, what the fuck? Excuse me, what the fuck? What, what's I don't understand. Over here we have, a, we have a bucket with a hole in it. Over here we have a person who, ha who has information. They, they don't see how those two things are, are similar. But to us, it's it's eminently, you know, kind of it makes it makes complete sense. And Chinese language, um, uh, Ezra Pound. Uh, uh, when I was in when I was in college, I read a work by Ezra Pound who talked about Chinese poetry. We were going through um, uh, a, a book of poetry called Sunflower Splendor. We weren't reading all of it, but we were reading these poems over and over, and uh, not over and over. We were reading various poems, and. Uh, Charles Wu, my professor at the time, was like, you, you know, you really can't grasp the poetry, the, 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 the real beauty of the poetry, unless you are looking at the, the characters. Because as Ezra Pound pointed out, um, the, in, the, in the written Chinese poetry, you can actually see people. You can see flowers. For instance, if you look at the flower for uh, the, the character for a lotus flower, you have the, the grass radical, and then you have this radical for, for, a, for a wheel, for a, a, a cart with wheels on it. And then you have this character for, for movement. And so 
you might you might ask yourself like well how what does a lotus have to do with a with a wheel but if you're actually familiar with lotuses you will see that that um that motif plays out the of this motif of a of a chariot moving of a wheel moving it plays out throughout everything that you kind of can kind of see with the lotus so if you've ever seen a lotus pot it has this kind of circular shape with these these holes in it it looks a lot like a wheel and that then is that then is is shaped it goes to a, a long kind of looks like an axle a long stem that's like an axle but the the image of the, the lotus with this wheel on an axle when you see it kind of sitting there it looks just like a as you you might imagine a wooden wheel on a chariot kind of moving you know moving through space and then the 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 lotus itself with this very well illustrated cycle of the the seed dropping out falling into the muck and then emerging as a flower again there's there's a wheel there and i could go on and on about just that one single character um, and then when you get into looking at the, the the etymological forms that were in use for that particular um, part of the character at the time when the word for lotus was first being recorded in two dimensions, um, you start to see how to the early um, Chinese thinker, to the to the early Chinese, I don't even want to call them intellectual, just human being who was trying to take these, these three-dimensional, um, four-dimensional really entities because they exist in time and space and record them somehow into two dimensions on, you know, you know three dimensions, I, well, it's two dimensions on, you know, on a flat surface. Mm -hmm. these, these, um, these etymological forms kind of become these, these shadows of these very complex four-dimensional, um, you know, entities. So the original... The original um, and the original title of Dr. Lu Ling's Lu Li Hong's book, Sukao Zhongyi, it was um, nature and its relationship to, to time. So he, he talks a lot about the way that time plays out through, um, uh, you know, in, in the cosmos. So for him, I think a lot of times in Chinese medicine, we often think about things in terms of three dimensions, um, even when we're thinking about the various phases and, and elements of things. Uh, but for him, time was a huge part of it. That's sort of a tangent. Um, where I was going with that was um, when you think about the, the Chinese language as it was first being recorded, you know, 2,500 years ago into a form like the, the Yellow Emperor's classic, um, where you had this very, it was still a relatively young language. And by a young language, I don't mean that um, it had first come into being. It was just it was just now leaving its kind of natural state. Um, what um, Steven Pinker often refers to as this, the, the, the native state of, of a language. So the native state of a language is in nature, out in nature, human beings in nature, cheek and jowl with nature, and it's spoken language. So the, the written language that we're, that we're referring to in the, in the classics, this was like its kind of first distillation on in two dimensions, but for the longest time, for, for 99 point whatever percent of human history, where we've been able to think very complex thoughts. And we've had, you know, these huge um, um, oral traditions, systems of, of medicine, um, uh, cosmologies, myths, um, very elaborate. We tend to think of, we tend to think of pre-literate societies as being somehow 
uh, primitive in their, in their, maybe in their storytelling or their descriptions of the world. But even our classics, when you think about uh, Homer's The Odyssey or, the, or you know, The Iliad, um, these were oral traditions. So these were, these were, they were recorded much later. They were written down, but they had, the whole story was out there. People would be able to sit down, a bard or whoever it was who was these storytellers, they would be able to recite the entirety of the, the Odyssey the entirety of the Iliad in, in one sitting, they would be able to sit down and, and spew the whole thing out in one sitting. And someone else there whose job it was back in the day to hear these stories would be able to hear it in one sitting. And then that person could go on to another, you know, another valley and spew it all out again. And it would be more or less the same, the same thing. And of course, with those types of writings, they had these um, there were certain devices, mnemonic devices that were used to allow people to be able to um, memorize these very um, elaborate and detailed forms. And those mnemonic devices are still there. The Yellow Press Classic is, is filled with them. One, one mnemonic device is to create a, a dialogue where you have one person talking to another person. And this makes it a lot easier to remember because you and I, if you and I are having this conversation now, and you might have a conversation, say, with someone else. The human mind is geared towards remembering conversations because we're social beings. And over the past however many millions of years that we've been using our, our brains to use uh, spoken language, so much of that language was who said what to who, what did they say going back and forth. So you can have a long conversation, a two hour conversation with someone. You can then go and talk to someone else, or you could be talking on the phone, and you could probably go through that conversation if you're if you're you know, there, 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 there's always a game of telephone there, but you can remember a lot from a conversation. Mm. I said this, then they said this, and if it's an intense conversation, like an argument or something like that, you can remember a lot of those those details and things. And so, in the Yellow Emperor's Classic, it's a it's a conversation. It's a conversation <laughs> between the between Huang Di and Qi Bo. So this, this passage, it starts with the yellow emperor. He, he you know, he, he and, and throughout the, you know, I don't want to start reading from the book, but um, throughout the yellow, throughout the yellow emperor's classic, uh, throughout the Huangdi Neijing, the yellow emperor will, will, you know, first ask something and then Chibo will answer it. That's one level of the mnemonic device. But the other level is the, uh, the yellow emperor's question, Huangdi's question, is very often kind of elaborate and kind of free formed. But the answer is very regularly this kind of rhythmic um, recounting of things through a particular formula. These, and these, these formulaic forms that could be four or eight character lines or you know, nine or 10 character lines, but they'll, they will just swap out a few, a few characters, a few ideas from each line. And so if you memorize one part of it, you then have you know ten or twelve lines memorized because all you have to do is remember well the heart it's the it then you just have to remember Shunming and Junju and you have the whole you have the whole rest of the the formula you have the the spiritual brightness and then you have Junju the the Jun is like the the sovereign and Ju is like the the ruler but um, in my lecture at the Pacific Symposium I'll go into the the etymology of those those individual characters um, but. Where I was going, where I was trying to get to with that in terms of the etymology is the, these, these individual elements that they place in there, for instance, Jun, this character Jun, which is often translated as, as sovereign or in, in um, you know, in 
translations of the the Yi Jing, like Wilhelm uh, Wilhelm Barnes' translation of uh, the uh, the I Ching, which is still my favorite translation, in part because it has Jung's um, it has Carl Jung's introduction to the I Ching, which talks about a, a lot of the things that I'm interested in. Uh, synchronicity, this use of archetypes and, and these kind of forms and whatnot. But in any case, um, that character Jun is translated as like the, the gentleman or the, or the superior man, he calls it the superior man, which already the, there are some issues there. But Jun as a character itself, it has a hand holding a, it has a hand holding an instrument, some sort of writing utensil, so writing, and then it has the mouth. So it's Jun really is, it's the written language or the act of writing language, and then the, the act of speaking. But when you think about these things, we, we write with our right hand. We don't write with our left hand. We write with our right hand and, and we speak with our mouth. These two parts of the, of the human being, this ability to, to write and to, and to speak, it's this linear it's the, it's the linear transmission of thought through time. So when you write, you're writing things out in, in a line. When you're speaking, you're taking one sound at a time and you're, and, you're, and you're placing them one after another in order to say something intelligent. If you take the, the letters that are, in, um, that are in, the, the, in any book and you scramble them up, you change their order in time, you change the order in which we look at them, it becomes nonsense. If you wanted to create a code, you could scramble those up and you could give someone a decoder that would allow you to jump around in space, but order them together in time and you'd have something intelligent there. It's the same with speech. The sounds that I'm making of themselves are simply sounds that could be singing, it could be humming, it could be nonsense. But when you, when you put them together in a particular order, all of a sudden you have some information that's being transmitted from one person to the other. The information exists in a non-linear state. The information exists in a non-temporal state in the world. But in order for us to actually transmit it and make sense of it, it has to be turned into this, this linear form. And that, that, linear, that, that linear form through time is essentially an expression of some type of analogy. It's an, it's an analog, analogical type of uh, expression that's made. Um, and so a story, uh, you know, a myth, uh, many of us, myself included, were fascinated by myths as, as children. What, what is it about these myths, about these Greek myths, these stories that are really so outdated, but they're, they're, they're so fascinating. They're better than other stories. I mean, I don't know if you, if you ever had that, that, that feeling, but I would read other stories. But when I was reading the, the Greek myths and things, those stories were, they were different somehow. And the, to, to my mind, the reason why those analogies, those stories are different somehow is they were, they were distilled out as, as the myths of the gods because they really were illustrating these archetypal forms that, that, that emerge everywhere throughout, throughout our world. We find them all over the place. The reason why, you know, when we're 10, 11, 12, 13, when our, um, you know, the, the, the part of our brain that processes language and processes time and consequences and everything else like that is is really forming and we're getting a sense of the way the world works in terms of of time in that in that way the reason why we're so i believe we're so fascinated by these these myths these these ur stories these these original deep archetypal stories is because they resonate with all of this information that we're getting all the time from the world around us that seems kind of nonsensical and 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 varied and um, 
uh, how can I describe it? Um, circumstantial, but it, but it's actually tied in with um, the um, the kind of the the, the, the core essence of how our world, our solar system, how, how human life is kind of working with itself. And, you know, when you, when you think about the Greek myths or even, um, you know, the, the elements in, in, in Chinese medicine, and you have like the solar system, we, we are existing on this, this spaceship that's somehow finely tuned. And this is all now coming to light with modern physics. These planets that are out there, human life as we know it right now, wouldn't exist. We wouldn't have it the way that we have it if it weren't for these planets being lined up just exactly as they are. You take you take a planet out of there, and things start to go haywire. And human life and life as we know it, this cosmos that we have, wouldn't exist as we are. So the, the the biosphere where we have living things, what's supporting that extends out into this cosmos. And you know the um, when the early Chinese thinkers that were uh, I don't even want to call them thinkers, just people that were on the planet. They would see the, the fire star, Mars, this reddish star that they could see. There was no light pollution or anything like that. They could climb up on a mountain. They could look out, they could see this reddish star. They could, they could see its rhythm because there wasn't, there wasn't any TV to watch. What there was, if you wanted to look out and, and know the, the mind of the cosmos, you would look up into the sky, but they would see the rhythm of it. They would see the, the light, the quality of its energy and everything else. And they would they would realize that this this whole shing this this fire star was related to you know the fire in the body and the cycles of fire that they would see out in the world both in, in time and space and and in terms of you know the what's referred to as the doctrine of signatures but it's really just the kind of imminent information that we're that we're getting from the the world all around us all the time that makes immediate sense to us just based on our um, biology psychology whatever you want to call it. Um, where was I going with that? I'm, I'm sorry. I, I kind of no, no, this, yeah. I mean, I, I, I am getting entranced with this in a thought that occurred to me when you were uh, beautifully describing how we interface with the cosmos and how all the planets have to be perfectly aligned for us to exist. Yes. Can we bring that back to your talk in these, and say that this, that's the microcosm within the macrocosm in that yes. the 12 officials, if you remove one of them, it's like chaos oh, ensues and then you don't have a living, breathing body. I mean, that's what we were talking about before I hit record is that we're seeing these patterns everywhere, holotropically, yes. holotropically. And yes. we were talking about that. And I think you're right in there. You're, you're, you're right on that vein of um, yeah. concept. So, so yeah. So, so thank you for bringing me back down to earth because um, in the in the in the twelve officials, it, the first official that's described is the heart. And um, after they go through all the officials, they it says that you know the ruler, the which Junju Shunming Chien the the. Um, the the if the ruler is not bright then essentially um you know the um you know all manner of 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 uh you know disease can can emerge in the body um and um it became clear to me early on when they were talking about the heart um the shin which is really heart and mind they mean the shin the character shin means both heart and mind in Chinese medicine. So Xin Li Shui, studying what's in the heart is psychology. And look, but when they talk about the, the organs, they have the Xin Zang, the, the organ of the heart. 
but I can remember when I was looking at, um, when I was teaching um, anatomy, physiology, and biochemistry, when I was looking at the, the when I was reading uh, biochemistry, it was actually this, this Stryer version of biochemistry there, which is still the best edition of that particular book, that biochemistry book. He talked about mitochondria. And one of the first ways that they discovered mitochondria was they discovered the, the cardiolipin, which is kind of the, it makes up the, the waxy um, membrane of the mitochondria, which is inside the cell. And so when they, they found this cardiolipin first, when they, when they took the heart tissue and they really just boiled it down, when they boiled down the heart tissue, they would get this fat that, that, they, that they didn't get as much of from other tissues. You get some from skeletal tissue and other things, but in the heart, you get a lot of this cardiolipin and it was a waxy type of, of fat. And this, this waxy fat is, is what gives, is what sort of insulates the mitochondria and allows for the proton transport ch chain, the, this, this voltage to be created between the outside and the inside of the mitochondrial membrane. It's a double membrane with this kind of uh, crystalline matrix on the, the inside of it. But in any case, right away, I was like, that's fascinating because why is it that mitochondria are, are so prominent in the heart? And when I started looking at mitochondria and, and looking at their role in the human body, and then looking at the role that the Chinese posited for the heart in the human body, I realized that, yeah, there is the organ of the heart, but the description of the heart in Chinese medicine overlaps way better with mitochondria and mitochondrial function than it does with the physical organ of the heart. Those, those two things don't, don't overlap. The, the physical organ of the heart, you can look at the pericardium, you can look at, you can, you can look at a lot of different, you can look at um, various, other, you can, various other organs and they will all interrelate with, with the heart there. But when you look at mitochondria and their role in health and disease, it really fits with the heart. And there's a book that recently came out here. Um, I, I read it. I'm going to read it again. It's by Nick Lane. It's called power, sex, suicide, mitochondria and the meaning of life. But he, he is just kind of um, riffing on and, and expanding on um, all this information that's, that's emerging about mitochondria and their role in the development of eukaryotic cells and, and the role, their role in developing macrocosmic life as you and I know it. I mean, people often, when we think about evolution, we often think about, oh, you know, there was bacteria and they, they slowly developed into, you know, the, the kind of macrocosmic life that we, that we see, you know, today. But in fact, it was a bacteria together with this archaea bacteria, this, these very primitive type of bacteria that, 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 that what are referred to as bacteria, but these two different types of organisms, one that is the, what now the mitochondria that lives in all of our cells and the other, which is the, that it kind of gave it a place to live, but it, but gave it all this kind of like equipment to work with. Um, it was that union that, that, that generated life in the human body. And um, geez, now where am I going with this? Um, I guess the, the reason why I'm bringing this up, I guess to some extent is when you look at mitochondrial function in the body and you look at the etymology of the, um, the characters that um, are referred to in the line for the heart, um, you can easily see how those two things were, how they were talking about the same thing. In, in fact, I kind of see them as two sides of the, of the same coin. And the coin itself is, 
ineffable. You know, it can't really be communicated in words because both, both all of our understanding of say mitochondria and all of our understanding of the heart in Chinese medicine, those are both still metaphors for, you know, the, for the heart, you know, life and the fire of life or um, mind, you know, since it's heart and mind. Um, and I could kind of go on and on about that. But for instance, if you take the character for shun, for care, for, for spirit, you have the, this, um, the part on the left, you have the character for above. So something from above. And then you have these three lines, which are, which are often refer, thought to refer to as the three lights coming down from above, but it's three, three things coming down from above. But that number three becomes important because in, in Chinese numerology and cosmology and Chinese thought, three is shorthand for the 10,000 things for like the, the multifarious, multifaceted world that we see around us. Once you have, once you, you, you have one and then two, but once you have three, the relationship between the two, now you have everything. You have all this stuff, the 10,000 things. But um, the part on the right, this character uh, shun, which is to extend, uh, it's different from shun, but it gives it its meaning. That was actually a lightning bolt. So it showed, it was this early form of the lightning bolt that gradually um, evolved into this character that we see today, which looks like a, it looks like a, a, sim a very simple tic-tac-toe board with a, well, a line it kind of extending through it. I didn't describe it very well. If I had a chalkboard, I could draw it for you. But originally that was a lightning bolt. So the shun spirit, as you know, as it was described, was this, uh, you know, this, this light or these things coming down from, you know, from a sky from above from, um, and then this uh, electrical um, connection between the two. And when you look at um, when you look at mitochondria at the very small level, the the um, the intensity of, of 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 voltage at this tiny level is equivalent to lightning. So if you were to take that if you were to take that tiny little millivolt transfer that that's feeding all of our life, that's a, that's turning the lights on so that you and I can see one another, so that there's something here that we can like see and, and which ultimately when that fails, the lights will turn off. There won't be any more show anymore. The, the sun and the moon and the stars of our existence will be gone. That's actually, that lightning is actually happening inside this, this mitochondrial membrane all the time. And the, um, anyway, I, I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna <laughs> go into the lecture that I'm going to give, but it, yeah. it's absolutely fascinating stuff. And what, what's so fascinating about it is these characters are, are right there. We look at them because they've already been fed through this feedback loop. They become kind of nonsensical. They become the original analogy, which is, which is right there in front of us. has just been kind of, it's just been kind of morphed so that you have to memorize this Chinese character, maybe write it 40 times before you get it. But I guarantee you, if I draw the, if I draw the, the character for Shun, the, the, the original Oracle Bone script for it, you could draw one at any point in the next 10 years that would look a lot like some version that you would find in a book like this. So when you look at the Oracle Bone script, there are all these different versions of the, you know, of the original script. So it wasn't like they had an alphabet that was clearly defined. So, you know, here we have this, this, this um, animal, this deer with its antlers, and then this, this entrance with its, you know, with its uh, footprints there, it transforms later on to this character, but you can see that it took on multiple forms. There were lots of different ways of drawing this animal, lots of different ways of drawing the little shape there. So you could come up with your own version and you would still, you would still kind of capture that same 
analogical information that the early Chinese thinkers were, were, um, were using. The other thing that I wanna say, um, I know we're probably kind of running out of time, but the other thing that I wanna say about the early kind of Chinese um, etymology is, you know, I think that um, Todd, he's, he's not familiar, he's not too familiar with this type of thinking that I have. So he wanted to kind of bring it back into clinical practice. I, and I will, I'm, I'm gonna bring a case study and I'm, I'm gonna do all that stuff. But, but this stuff, you don't, you don't need a particular, nobody needs me to tell them, oh, this is that. Once you, once you get in there and you start thinking about, once you know, oh, this is, this is lightning, this is the electrical impulse, this is, these are the lights, and you have that in your head, it becomes immediately useful in your clinical practice because you'll be thinking about it that way. And human beings, the least intelligent, least intelligent human being and the most intelligent human being, there's a very, they're very, they're, they can have a conversation. You yeah. and I can have a conversation. If we were out in the garden and we were messing around with plants for a few weeks, we would both be learning from each other. We would both see things about those plants and we'd both, you know, oh, you put too much water on or Hey, you stepped on this. You know, we would both, we would both be seeing things in, in, in working with the human body. It's not, it's not terribly different from that in that things become too dry or they become too wet. Things become too dark or they become too light. And so the type of kind of common sense, it, you know, may or may not be that common, but the type of kind of common sense, it's guided by these, these analogical um, patterns that were transmitted by, transmitted through the, the classics. But there was a time when, and, and, and these classics are, were emerged during this time when, um, the human being was still part of nature. So the question of us being like in harmony with nature at that time, what, what, it, it, what, it wasn't as much of a question. We were still part of the, the fabric that made up the natural world. Our ability to kind of accord with things out in nature, these very um, uh, sophisticated forms out in nature, other creatures, water, plants, mm -hmm. stones, things like that. We, we had an, an, a natural, a native understanding of them from interacting with them in our everyday life and from not having the feedback loops that currently uh, divorce us from the natural world. So also um, known as distractions, right? Yes. Like our phones, our you know, computers, everyday high-tech life. Yeah. Now, this is an interesting, I find this an interesting thing because um, I'm trying to remember the name of the author, but there was a book called The, the Alphabet Versus the Goddess. Um, and it was, it basically talked about how the, the, wherever the written word emerged and became um, dominant within a culture and a society is the name of that. Anyway, it'll come to me. But um, wherever it emerged and became dominant in um, uh, human society, women were suddenly cast into a lower class. The goddess figures were, were torn down and this whole kind of rewiring of the, of the brain started to happen where we were following this kind of linear, this kind of linear type of thought. So we became the, the right hand, the writing hand, the, the kind of patriarchal, if you want to call it that form, you know, there, and all these, these uh, terrible travesties. You'll have to look it up. It's the alphabet versus goddess. It's a, it's a great book. But in that book, he actually sees hope. And I'm starting to see hope for um, human culture and the human mind um, because 
he's and this is this was written like in the like late 70s um this was before everyone had one of these cell phones where we could get lost watching youtube or, or whatever but he saw hope in a way for the human mind swinging back to a less patriarchal less uh a society less divorced from the the natural world um when when our when we started to look more at images and we started to move away from from the written the, the actual written word word so i i love books and I'm, I'm not gonna be able to stop kind of reading or or that kind of thing but um but uh i do kind of i i think i think the 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 this kind of I think we're sort of on the verge of the um, the the irony, the um, what I want to call it, the, the return, the, the return to what it used yes, to be, it, or it almost the be return like to truth. Return it to will the be truth. Like, it will Capital be like we're looking at our we're looking at our phone, we're looking at this beautiful kind of waterfall type type image thing, and we're we're trying to engross ourselves in this in this in this world in a in this thing that we've constructed and we'll be surrounded by cement and concrete and noises and everything else. And we'll suddenly realize that we can set the phone down and walk out of the city and we can actually be in that natural world. Like we've, we've created this feedback loop where we're trying to kind of comfort ourselves with these devices and things, but we're, we're, we're I, I think we're, we get, I think every technological step we get closer and closer to the this kind of hypnotist trick that we're playing mm -hmm. on ourselves mm -hmm. suddenly kind of uh, being revealed to ourselves. And, and um, you know, yeah, what you refer to it as the return, it will suddenly, um, you know, this may, this may be how we kind of set ourselves up for that again. Maybe that the, the feedback gets so bad that it starts to turn back into a musical tone again. I, I don't know. I don't know how to- It's it, definitely it. a return. Like yes. I was, sharing with you that I've interviewed several of the presenters for symposium this year and yeah. I see a theme of return to classics yeah. and if we look at the microcosm within the macrocosm the holographic nature of just existence yes this symposium is representative of what we're seeing in the world right now which is a return return to what's important, return to the natural rhythms. I think it's exciting. It's exhilarating. I think from our conversation, not recorded and now recorded, people that come to your workshop are going to be able to actually almost have a new facet on their lens of looking at life and practice. So like you said, you're not there to tell them how to practice or protocols Instead, they're going to leave and they're not going to see the world different because already in this hour of talking with you, I am seeing the world around me differently, which creates that feedback loop, which will plug us into that return, which will ultimately do all the things that we're talking about. And right. you're right. Like, I hope you get through your lecture in three hours because yeah. this topic is so dense. So I know you're a, a, a doctor of naturopathic medicine and yeah. also a physician of Chinese medicine. So you speak those languages, you translate Chinese medicine and yeah. Chinese text. So you, you do speak Chinese and I, I, speak I, Chinese. Think, speak I bet you speak other languages as well. Uh, yes, German. Uh, I, I, I did a year of high school in Germany and I have translated some 
uh, German uh, text. I, I translated uh, Dimona des Yijing's uh, by uh, Frank Fiedler, uh, which is a book about the, the Yijing, um, the moons of Yijing. Uh, yeah, this, that, would, that would have been back in 2003 or four. Yeah, and it's from that. I mean, I, I can see and I can feel your passion for etymology and just language and its origin and how it relates to why we're here and how we interact. I mean, your three hours at symposium is so um, profound, very similar to the analogy that you use that we have these classics and they're on our, on our desks and we're just like, yeah, whatever. And then we, we're not really understanding the depth there. We're just yeah. really not understanding the depths is there until we take the time to look deeper and that's what you're going to do in the three hours. And yeah. specifically that chapter eight of the Yellows uh, Emperor's Classics and in the 12, uh, uh, you call them the, the 12 well, officials, the right? Yeah. Like the organ systems, you know, but basically, uh, I mean, even your talk, we can apply it to all the things, the way that the planets are aligned, uh, the way the mitochondria um, reflect um, the, the heart in Chinese medicine. And honestly, I've never ever heard that, I don't know if it's a concept, it's information basically, it's you know universal information of that little lightning bolt in the mitochondria. Oh, I mean, that so, is so exciting. And it's found in the characters of Chinese medicine. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, I think the, um, there's so much in just that, that brief part of chapter eight, but also um, the, the, the one thing I, I, I do want people to come away from my lecture with is to um, not be afraid of Chinese characters and also to realize that the, the Chinese characters that are written out there they can easily, with with the with the software and, and whatnot that's available now. I mean, back when I first started studying Chinese, you had to learn how to use a dictionary, which was a pain in the butt. And even after you learn how to use a dictionary, it was frustrating because sometimes you just couldn't find a character. It would be somehow listed. It would be indexed differently. Or nowadays, there there and and, I'm, and I want to give I'm, one of the things I'm going to do is I want. Everyone who comes to my lecture, I'm going to tell them, you need to download this on your phone. This is kind of how you use it. I'm not going to do a tutorial, but I'm just going to give them an idea of how to use it. And this is where you can go to find etymologies all over the internet. Now it used to be, I used to, I mean, I bought this book would have been 15 years ago now. Um, and at the time I was so excited, um, but the amount of information that's on the internet now that you can easily access, even as an English speaker, um, far, you know, far surpasses anything that I have in my library. And so, you know, you can go in there, you could be curious about some passage in the Yellow Empress Classic, and you could sit down there and you can really get in there and start to see the living, the living world, the, the pictures that, that, you know, the imagery that was created there, that's, that has information in it that you don't, um, that you don't even need to translate because it's an actual picture. It's like looking at someone doing something. Um, yeah. I love it. I love it. When, when people want to engage with you further, you are a professor at um, NUNM no, currently or no, not anymore? No, no. no. Now I am, um, if they, if they want to contact me, I mean, 
I'm happy to give you my I'm happy to give you my my email or um, I'm on social media. I don't really use it that much. Um, so what about at the Clinic 11? I know you have the clinic. You had the Clinic 11 in Portland. Um, right. Near- so I closed that in 2020. And now I am, you know, I, I have a, a clinic space at home. I have another space that I share with a friend. I'm not looking for more, I'm not looking for more patients. I'm just kind of doing my studies. I have the people that I'm working with. Um, I'm really focused right now. And this is something that we talked about before yep. this started. But basically in 2020, um, I had a, 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 a clinic in Chinatown, about a half block from uh, the Lansu Chinese Garden, where I'm now the architectural conservator. But um, I had a clinic there. And um, like a lot of people, 2020 was a, a year of significant change uh, for me. Um, we ended up closing that clinic. Uh, Chinatown was sort of inundated with um, people that are genuinely suffering, the homeless people and the, the disenfranchised in Portland. They all got funneled into Chinatown. So it became a, a tent city there. We had to close the clinic. I moved back home. I started, I had an opportunity to just really study and get back more into the classics and just reading all these books that had kind of stacked up that I, you know, kind of barely touched or just been nibbling at because, um, you know, I was kind of working and doing things in the clinic all day and then getting home and, you know, reading for a few hours, I started devoting time to that. And so now I've, I've really shifted my, um, my focus for the, you know, probably for the next decade, I want to, um, just really study and write. Um, I want to grow Chinese herbs and whatnot in my uh, yard so I can look, I can, I can start to understand them a little better because you learn so much about the herb and the plant from watching it through its mm-hmm. life cycle. I mean, I don't know how many times I've prescribed um, or I've told people that they should take uh, lotus seeds for this, that, and the other thing. I've even found ways that they, that they work. But now having some lotuses in my little pond in the backyard and having to care for them um, and seeing the lotuses at the Chinese garden and learning how to care for them and watching them go through their cycle. They're, they're really starting to make sense. I'm, I'm seeing more where they would fit into a formula where they would fit into um, you know uh, w- what they could be used for. I'm seeing a lot more uses for them than I did before. So I really want to, I really want to pare down the, the herbs that I use. And I want to focus more on herbs just in general, in terms of, um, you know, treating, uh, you know, providing health and disease, but pair, pair them down and understand them better. And just kind of get, get into the, the, uh, the depths of my understanding of Chinese medicine and my relationship with the people that I'm, you know, trying to help and, and whatnot. Um, Kind of, and yeah. then, and then yeah. the professor in you, you're not a professor I, currently employed, but once a professor, always a professor, I imagine after your deep dive and discoveries, you'll want to come out and share those with I, I, I love, other people, just like you're that. doing at symposium. So. Yeah, I do. It's sometimes I feel like it's, you know, like you shake a bottle up and then you take the lid off and, you know, there's this explosion, like just in talking to you, I, I, so many of these ideas, you know, I've, I've um, been, been just in the last few months, I've, you know, read this whole new crop of, um, books on, you know, physics and artificial intelligence and, um, um, and, you know, and also, um, the, this new discoveries, uh, with, um, the mitochondria, the role of mitochondria and, uh, the development of eukaryotics and its role just in, um, in living cells, the human body, but just living cells in general, 
Um, and, and, but I haven't had much of an, I've been writing my own things, but I haven't had much of an opportunity to actually talk to anyone because I'm just kind of doing my own thing. But yeah, so it, it feels like almost like this explosion of, of ideas when I do get to uh, finally talk to someone. In, in a way, it, it feels, there's something about it that feels, it's almost like a deflated feeling that I get. You know, it's like, oh, it's all kind of, it's almost like I vomited it all out. Um, but it, well, you but have it, given yeah. us a lot. I hope you don't feel like you vomited because well, yeah. you've given us all so much just in this. Imagine three hours of this deep dive and then being able to, you'll never be the same. You're going to go out into the world and look at it so differently. I just love that. I really hope, and I will be following you to see, you know, the other books that are coming out the other lectures that are coming out. And if anybody is in Portland, you can probably go see Gabe at the Chinese Garden because one thing that I haven't revealed yet is that besides being an author, professor, translator, um, educator, physician of uh, naturopathic medicine and Chinese medicine, and now uh, obviously an herbalist, uh, he is a Mason and has done extensive work with the Portland Chinese Garden to um, uh, rectify or actually just kind of correct some um, aging architecture there using ancient Chinese masonry that you went and studied in China and then brought it back and then helped them save some of this architecture that was, you know, uh, falling apart literally. And as you were doing that, you were again seeing Chinese medicine in and how even just bringing like working on the structure of the um, building at the garden is very similar to working on the structure of the human body. And it's like the same principles apply. And it's like, you just constantly are seeing, can you just take a second to explain the difference between holographic and holotropic? Because well, I'm kind yeah. of dancing around that concept right now. Yeah. So we, that was something that I mentioned. I think I, I think I, I, in my, my description of the lecture, I, I used the word, holotropic and that I first came across that word in a book by this was a long time ago by Stanislav Grof the holotropic mind I um, mean he talks a lot about you know these perinatal matrices and um, uh, a lot about the way you know these kind of themes in our lives um, uh, recur on an you know on, a, on a, an immediate way on an hourly way anytime we undergo a task over the course of a, a year say over the course of a relationship of a lifetime but the way all those can kind of go back to this very small um, event, you know, the event of us, you know, being born and the way that we navigated that first crisis emerging from the womb out into the world. That's all Stanislav Grof's work. But I like that work. Uh, I like that word holotropic. I like it better than holographic, which was an earlier book by, I think, Michael Talbot. I, I might be forgetting the, the name of the author, but um, he had the book, The Holographic Universe. I know that's the name of the mm -hmm. book, but in any case... Mm -hmm. The, the reason why I like holotropic better is it does really include the, uh, the mind um, and language, um, what I think of as language. Um, when, I, when I think about language, I'm really talking about this, these systems of analogies that allow the mind to process information in a way that is meaningful, uh, to create um, you know, meaning from all this, this soup of information that's that, that's outside of us. And in that way, you know, each of us has our own kind of holotropic lens through which we perceive 
the 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 world you know the the cosmos you know what's happening around us and you know how we also then can relate it uh you know to other people through you know either what we create or do or or say um but um i don't i think the real for me the real distinction is i think the ideas were the same i think that the 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 in, internal ideas were the same but i think with uh, stanislav Grof, he he, he really brought out how our own psyche uh, creates these, um, I, I, you know, I keep wanting to use the word gestalt, but gestalt sounds very static, but in any case creates these, these, these forms, they're dynamic forms. So gestalt isn't necessarily the, the best way to, to phrase it, but um, to create these, these dynamic forms, then recreate themselves throughout you know, our lives. And in terms of, in terms of health and disease, it's very important because in, you know, chapter eight of the Yellow Emperor's Classic, in the, 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 um, the, the treatise of the secret library of the miraculous orchid, the Linglan Media and Lun, um, it's talking about this network of 12 officials, how they relate to one another. And once you understand them individually, you can kind of start to think, and it's maybe a little difficult for us because the metaphor that was used in this book was written at a time when there was a particular system of government that probably seemed kind of imminent to the um, early Chinese thinker. You know, you had the, the, you know, the, the minister and the emperor and these types of things. And the names for those, for those roles were tied together with these um, uh, more kind of elemental descriptions of, you know, kind of cosmic descriptions of, uh, you know, how that role might fit into the, 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 the larger cosmos. But um, in any case, when you start thinking about the, these larger networks and you think about the person who's in front of you, you can kind of start to see how um, the, these particular aspects of the person, these particular roles that are playing a part within the person, um, what their disharmonies might be um, and how you might be able to restore them yeah, restore them to health by um, you know making adjustments here and there um, to to these relationships because he 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 um, the the yellow emperor asked he says I'm gonna have to put my glasses on because any glasses these days but uh one yeah you want tian yi oh sorry I'm in the wrong I've opened up chapter nine there um yuan um, he, he wants to know about the 12 sang, the 12 um, uh, organs, the 12 treasures. They're xiang shi, they're mutual xiang. Even this character xiang is very interesting because it shows a, it shows a tree and then an eye. And so it, it, today it's often translated as mutual. Like xiang, it means like, uh, yin yang xiang hu, uh, yin yang like the uh, yin and yang are, um, are, are mutually rooted in one another. But xiang literally was this tree and then an eye looking at it. And it used to mean to, to inspect, to inspect something. So, but when you think about a mutual, some type of mutual relationship, it's this, this the um, object and the subject are in a relationship with one another. It's they have to be. Yeah, that is what that's what a mutuality is. It's how the subjective and the objective relate to one another. 
So Xiang literally meant to inspect. So in one kind of understanding of that kind of etymology would be um, you've got a tree. It's essentially an inanimate object that you want to do something with. But, but you, you first you have to look at it. You know, you have to you have to see, is that tree going to be good for what I want? You go out into the woods, you have to look around for the tree. Once you find the tree, you have to look at it and be like, is this one? How am I going to use it? There's a long period of time where you're looking at the, the wood, you're looking at the tree before you can kind of use it. Um, so Xiang has this kind of mutual kind of subject ob object relationship to it. And then the character Shi, you have a person and then you have a, a, someone writing, but they're kind of writing something down. Shi can mean to like um, to, to send a message or to communicate, to somehow um, uh, to extend your will on something outside yourself through some intelligent means, through, through writing. But that's just a metaphor for how you would get something to, to happen. So xiang shi could be like their mutual interaction with one another. But again, it's this the subject object. How, how, are they, how are they working with one another and how are they creating like an intelligent dialogue between one another to influence each other. And so when you look at each of these um, elements in this kind of cybernetic network, um, yeah, it, and you understand the etymology, any practitioner, even student, you know, who's in, in, the, in the clinic, you'll immediately be able to kind of start using that in your clinical practice, uh, I would I think. I love it. I love it. And it will only help you be a better practitioner to be able Absolutely. to look at things with different dimensions and from different lenses, right? I, yeah. I just love it. I, I love it. I this this entire talk. I know we've gone way over time. Um, so, but thank you for that. Thank you for going over time. Thank you for sharing even more than what we thought we were going to get into, which is your discussion at symposium. And then and right. just so much more. I, I, if you guys want to find Gabe, you got to come to symposium, find him on social media, find him on his website. I'm sure you can email him that way. Um, and, and keep your eyes out for the work that is going to come out of this person, because I can already tell that as you explore and uncover more, you're going to share it more with the world in our community. And I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm very grateful for this conversation. Oh. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. And uh, well, yeah. I'll see you because I'll, I'll be at symposium myself. And if yes, I'm in Portland, I'm coming to the Chinese Garden to see I'll your work. You I know you're at the yeah. Vancouver Chinese Garden as well. Yeah. And I mean, just talk about dimensions and multifaceted. Um, you're the guy. You're the guy. So, guys, anybody listening or watching in, come to symposium or watch symposium or buy this recording later on because you're gonna get a lot more out of it than uh, you think. Like you said earlier, like the title of my talk doesn't really describe it, but it's so perfect because that's illustrative of what you're talking about. <laughs> right, absolutely. All right, my friend, I'll see you in a couple months at symposium. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Bye.